You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Because I look for any reason to geek out over history with other writers. Aww. I don't have any <laughs> I'm Marcia Ryan Moresca. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Alexandra Rowland. I'm S.A. Chakraborty. And this is episode 17, A Brief History of... Hello, welcome to episode 17, dear listeners, and thank you for joining us, uh, Shannon Chakraborty. It is delightful to have you here. Uh, we are so terribly honored and flattered that you took uh, time out of your very hectic and, and crazy day to join us. Uh, would you like to introduce, yourselves to, or introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a little bit about your books and so forth? Yes, well, first... Thank you for having me, and thank you for all of the people for listening to me. Uh, my name is Shannon. I write under my initials, so I am S.A. Chakraborty, and I write historical fantasy mostly based on the medieval Islamic world. My books out are the Devabad Trilogy, The City of Brass, and The Kingdom of Copper, and I have my third one, The Empire of Gold, coming out this summer. And it is basically politics meets morally gray, <laughs> everybody, <laughs> um, versus like my very personal old homage to the medieval Islamic world that I worked on when I was in my 20s. And um, yeah, that's that's what I do. So I'm, I'm very interested to be with you guys and talk about history and, and talk about ways to bring that into fantasy and sort of challenge a lot of what, what we think about the past and what we and how that relates to today. Fantastic. You sound so and polished I, when you talk about your, your work. I was very impressed. I was like, oh, yes. we have a professional here with us today. I'm polished once I start talking about my work. Beforehand, just introducing myself, I don't know who I am, but you know. Let's say I am, I am super excited um, that you're here with us, Shannon, just because talking about history, um, I don't know that I have run into a book that has so much rich like real world history dropped into it as well as the fantasy world history like wrapped up together it's it's so cool if you haven't read these books dear listeners um get into them they are wonderful they're great great winter reads i feel like because you can just Ooh. kind of like wrap up in them for a nice long time um but yes Thank they're really you. good history geek reads too because you can kind of see all these fun easter eggs that shannon drops into them so nice do we have any fun announcements that we need to hit up before we dive into the I meat of our episode? I has one. Yes. Um, my latest book my, is The Fenmere Job, which will drop at the end of this month. I think it actually releases on February 25th, and it's filled with heists and vigilantes and vengeance and fighting and i even throw in the only one bed trope because i know that that's <laughs> alex's marshall ryan maresca <laughs> of course you, you charmer marshall ryan maresca <laughs> though i do i will say I, I will say i subvert it just a little bit when when it pops up but it's a fun trope to throw in there it's a good trope it's a good trope bront <laughs> Uh, yeah, so dear listeners, go buy uh, Marshall's book. It is, uh, I'm 
deep in my TBR pile and I still have not read Marshall. I bought Marshall's book, but I haven't read Marshall's book yet because that's the way it be when you are a writer with writer friends. You buy their book and then you promise uh-huh. not it, to read it ever. Then you have a giant pile. I have my giant pile as well that I'm yeah, still it's, that is that is the way of through. the industry. Um, I have a tiny, tiny piece of news, which is that I finished the first draft of my book, which is coming out in October, Finding Fairies from Tiller Press. Uh, I don't think that it's quite available for pre-order yet, but that should be soon, very, very soon. Uh, so keep your eyes open for that, and we'll certainly be shouting about it on Twitter, etc. Yes. And I'll say, cool. Alex, let me read a little bit of the draft, and it is so much fun, and I ah, can't wait you. to see thank more. So, I'm actually yes. really proud of how it turned out. <laughs> I was having some like emotional ups and downs, as is as is the way when one is writing a book, of course. Um, it's all as part of the process, yes. Uh, but I'm, I'm really happy with, with what I've got now. I think it's really solid. So, yay! Uh, let's have an episode. Let's do that. I feel like let's start where we always start with these big picture questions, which is that like moment where we try to define the impossible. Yeah. I think we've done this with like every big episode that we've had, like define religion, define all this stuff. It's impossible. But how do we define what is history? What? So what this, is history? This is kind of one of my wheelhouses right because it's just story right like history is just the stories that we tell each other about the past and that means that a lot of times it's really biased uh there is the old adage that history is written by the victors which is mostly true i think it's not as true as the the proverb would suggest um because the losers still exist and still keep living and have their own view of how the history happened. And sometimes we get to see the other side of that, which is, is good. Um, but so that's, that's sort of my definition. Would you guys have a differing definition than that? I, I kind of see a sliding scale in some ways, because when you, when you get into the study of history, there are things that real historians will um, dismiss as being antiquarianism. Like, you want to know what kind of button mold was used to make a fourth regiment of foot regimental coat in 1764. That's antiquarianism. But that exists on the sliding scale with big narrative history, right? Because we get some of these moments where this tiny little detail actually determines, you know, how, for example, technology changes or works Mm -hmm. or turns and suddenly it, it affects big picture what goes down the line. So I kind of see his big picture history existing on a scale with the tiny little details that don't seem to matter, but somewhere in there you can end up having kind of a switch over into like, Oh, this is actually part of the big narrative. Yeah. So Rowena, I have an, I have an extra question. Will you briefly tell us what is antiquarianism and why are you saying it as if it's a dirty (laughs) word? (laughs) <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't think it's, well, it, it's kind of a dirty word, but it's often treated as like the minutiae, um, the little things that don't matter about the past. So kind of, I think that terming antiquarianism comes from the idea of you have a curio cabinet of curiosities that we curate about the past that don't actually matter. They're collector's items, they're trivia, they're nostalgic, but they don't necessarily matter. And so mm-hmm. sometimes when um, interesting bits of historical flotsam and jetsam aren't connected to the big picture narrative, it's kind of dismissed in academic circles as, well, that's not, that's not history history, that is mere antiquarianism. Mm. But I think that there's actually a lot of detail in, 
you know, the flotsam and jetsam of the past yeah. that just has not been necessarily, has not been connected to the, the big narrative and, and can be in very interesting ways. Especially, Does that answer the question? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it's interesting because I would, taking off what you what you just said and going both with, with your definitions, I would agree with that, um, that it's very much, it, it's a set of stories. It's an ever-evolving, ever-contested set of stories. Um, but it's interesting because my period of history is, is sort of late antiquity to early medieval the Islamic world. And what you're saying about the antiquarianism, my, my interest was trade. So it's it's interesting because the flotsam and jetsam is sort of exactly what determines it um, yeah. you know that where it's it's you find a, a certain item you say you find pottery in east africa that that is there that has is, is obviously from china and has been found centuries earlier than the established narrative it turns it over and it's you know it's something that's prized because it's this proof that we're looking for yeah yeah for sure right and i think also like the minutiae because we're here because we want to write books, right? And I think the minutiae are often more accessible to the reader and more interesting and compelling to the reader than the big sweeping history often is. Because a lot of times, you know, like, I love Tolkien. We all love Tolkien. We all owe Tolkien a great debt of gratitude. But at the same time, like, he's writing about big sweeping history. And the people that we're interested in are the hobbits. And he knew this. His protagonist is one of the hobbits because he knows that people like the the small, homely, earthly sort of things more than they care about, like the big battles. Right? I guess it's sort of like it's, it's the old thing you say about the iceberg of world building. Yes. yes. That the author has to know those big sweeping narrative histories, but and then distill it down to an actual plot and characters that the reader <laughs> will care about. Yeah. Right. Which I think is an excellent question. How much do you... As the writer, how much do you know about your world's history? And I think that's that's a good, like, how much do you personally, Alex, Marshall, Ryan, Marissa, and Shannon, know about your world's histories? But how much does a writer need to know? Which may be a different question than what we know. Well, it's going to depend on the book, and it's going to depend on what you're trying to do with the book, and it's going to depend on many, many factors. Marshall and I both have extensive timelines. Marshall's timeline is more extensive than mine. Marshall's <laughs> timeline of history in his books makes me look like I look at this thing and I go wow that was written by a nerd I'm glad that mine is only 14 pages long 14 <laughs> no because I'm, I'm practically restrained by comparison <laughs> because I mean yeah because a lot of when I did the world building stuff like I didn't I didn't know what the story I was writing was yet so I was just working more on figuring out all the different parts of the world and what the how they got to where they are yeah and that we were was just having fun doing and i was having puzzle. fun just fiddling with it and doing that yeah thing. but it was That's definitely valid. a process of this is where i want this world to be how do i get it to there and with it because mm -hmm. i one of the big things to me was to make a world where things changed over time and yep. borders moved yes and and empires rose and fell and how that and there's not a dynasty in power for a thousand years and there's not a dynasty right. in power for a thousand <laughs> years or 500 years ago this one battle happened but everyone still remembers it or something like <laughs> Jesus. that right. yep well because i think that that's that's a definite um 
deliberate choice to make because some often especially very epic high fantasy can take on this mythic quality that Mm -hmm. is a as it was in the beginning is now and ever shall be this is how it is and so I think that to create you know a less mythic tone to your work that reads a little bit more like um the way that our lives tend to read the way that our intersections of history tend to feel it requires doing a little bit of that work or else you do have that stagnant static this is this is what it is this is what it is and this has always been yeah i think so i actually i i very much understand where you're coming from marshall because that's how my series had started out that i just was writing short stories and this history of this world that didn't exist for like eight years before i was like ah maybe i should turn this into a novel um (laughs) But I think I also wanted to, and I think a lot of stories do this, is that I wanted my characters to have that same feeling we have where we have to uncover our history and our understanding of the world gets challenged. And in order to have a history that could be challenged and contested, I think if that's what you're going for as a writer, you need to have that in your head. They're down on paper. What exists versus, you know, how people are untangling it. Yes, yes. So there's the difference between, like, the objective facts of what happened versus the what everyone thinks they know or the sort of biased story that gets told about it. Yes, for sure. Which also then, when you as the author even are just writing your own notes about like what the history of the world you're building is going to be, you have to, you have to make a choice of what that voice is going to be. Because I know I struggled a long time of just trying to be like, am I writing this in this truly neutral voice of like just this is what happened or am I going to take a point of view and who is writing this history and what that means that it is being written by a specific person or a specific academic body or something like that. Yeah. Because there is a difference between what's the recorded history and what actually happened. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes. And that was, I found that um, through all three of my books when people were referencing history i i almost always introduced the reader to history by a character referencing something in history and so you're getting not just the historical factoid but that character's biases and ideas and sometimes xenophobic or uh, bigoted or um otherwise stuck up um view on what had happened and so it ended up kind of being like a double reveal on like yes this happened oh and by the way these people feel this way about it yes um like you're revealing something about the character at the same time that you're giving the world building which is the way right. to do it honestly and of course one of the big challenges you have with that is whenever you're writing any form of speculative fiction if you put a piece of you know, like information out there that reads is like this is a factual piece of information about the world People will take that as some sort of gospel, yes. regardless of the in-story sourcing of it. So that becomes, it becomes a big challenge in how you're writing it to make it clear that what you're putting out there is just one person's opinion about a thing, rather than this is how think something truly was or is or works. Yes, right. yes. I had a great time doing this in A Conspiracy of Truths and A Choir of Lies. It wasn't quite history, but I definitely... Whose book is that? uh, In Mad Book. (laughs) Thank you. I'm sorry, I forgot to do it earlier. No, it's a bad tone. You're right, you're right. Um, Because there were definitely some times where I set 
in in the first book i set out some information and i just did that fantasy author thing where i just presented this as facts even though i knew it was not true and then in the second book i go actually guess what that thing that you thought was true isn't true uh and i will probably continue doing that sort of bullshit because <laughs> that's a great that's a great Alex trick on to her do. bullshit <laughs> on my bullshit yep so where are spots that when you're building a world and revealing that world that history intersects with stuff in your world like how does that spots i mean so much of it it's interesting because with with the david bod trilogy and even more to an extent with with my next project which is um takes place during the crusades because i guess i decided my my hate mail wasn't enough (laughs) 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 but on that (laughs) but it's you know I wanted to present something that felt both like a mirror world and sort of a portal fantasy for my main character who was coming in from the 1800s in Egypt to a time about 400 centuries in the past. Mm. But And then the world itself is built on, this is the world of the jinn, and it's the world they have created by essentially spying on humans for centuries. And when I set out, especially when I was like, oh, yeah. I, this is apparently going to be published, you know, it's it's that thing of like I you're looking at multiple audiences. You're creating something that's fictional, but I'm writing about uh, the the Islamic world for an for an audience that's fairly split between. So it's where do I represent history that is true, and where do I represent it that I'm trying to have my my characters fight over something like that. Uh, so I was always very careful to try to present multiple points of view but also find a line where you're talking about you know there's some certain atrocity or whatever and not justifying it mm-hmm. that it's it's kind of like where do we play this in, in history of ever you know history is written by the losers or history is written by the winners you know where's the messiness in that i guess yeah. where do you where do you say if everybody's you know has has blood on their hands where do you find the line between that's really bad or that can be fixed? <laughs> so i guess um Trying to find the actual intersections of history there was more playing with parallels in terms of colonialism and occupation and just the idea of a multi-ethnic state, a multi-ethnic city under various leader, various leaders. It's I would almost hesitate to pin an exact point of, of history on any of it. The Crusades nice. book is much greater. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's some danger in that too, right? Because there are my in my book, I have really strong French Revolution parallels, but it's not an exact parallel, and a lot of the historical antecedents are, are not that. So occasionally, yeah, I'll, I'll get, like, random questions like, well, this isn't really how it happened. And I'm like, well, I, yeah, I know that, because it's not actually, <laughs> it's not actually the French Revolution. That's just kind of where it goes. <laughs> <laughs> that we know of, I mean, you know. <laughs> I, I've found from some of the reviews and emails I've gotten that some people can't quite figure out what the difference between <laughs> historical fantasy and secondary world fantasy is because you'll get things like that. It's like, well, it seems like France, but yet, like, because it's not France. So <laughs> yeah, that's why. Because it's not. So, you know, one thing I was thinking about with thinking about history and fantasy novels is that the beginning of almost every fantasy novel in those opening pages, we get a map and yes. just how much history can be wrapped up in where did that map come from? Where did yep. those borders come from? Yep. Do you guys have any of that in, 
in your books or examples from other books that uh, okay. stick out to you? I, I have a very fun story about uh, the map in Mad Book, um, A Conspiracy of Truths, because I had a big discussion with my editor. She was like, I think this needs a map. And I was like, you're absolutely right. It does need a map, but it's going to be the wrong map. It's, I'm not going to, because we trust the map to be objective, right? We trust the map in the front of the book to be, here's the truth. And here is reality. Here is where everything is located. Here's something that you can refer to and rely on. We trust a map to be an effective tool. And really, maps, because they are a piece of history, are just as much propaganda as written history is, because you can make country, certain countries look bigger, you can make certain cities look more influential, you can say, here there be dragons where your enemies live, you can do all sorts of things to influence how people think by looking at a map. And so I was like, we're not going to put the objective truth map in the book, we're going to put the, a lying map in the book, because there is a map at the end of the book which is mentioned, and it's a plot point that the map is wrong. So I had us put I had us put the incorrect map in the front of the book because it is it was a map that was made by someone who was trying to have political influence and and flatter someone and you can do so much with that, you know? I love that. I if you ever see a map of like just post-American revolution kind of pre-sorting it all out you'll notice that really frequently the entire Midwest is labeled Virginia because <laughs> Virginia wanted it. Right. They claimed it. And so the entire Midwest gets labeled Virginia before it gets parceled out as the Northwest Territory. And so it's like, yeah, that map was, it was, it was correct to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. I'm hoping for my next series, they'll let me do the old style, you know, the, Essentially, the world looks like it's upside down and that it's censored on, on Mecca and, and that the borders oh, yeah. of the oceans and everything cool. is yeah. different, where it's kind of just like the Mediterranean's like this and you know, the Indian Ocean and the Arabian Sea and all that are much larger because it's, you know, it's, it's what's important to your characters. Yes. You know, yes. Yes. Their understanding of the world. And when you're, you're trying to reach readers, you want what is important to your characters to resonate to your readers as well. Yes, for sure. Yeah, and we've talked about a lot of other like cultural elements on this podcast, and we will talk about many, many more, but I think it's worth noting that a lot of cultural stuff that we talk about that we include in our books, like dress, food, mm -hmm. celebrations, you know, a lot of them have historical antecedents. Like, where did that food come from? Is it indigenous to where you are, or did someone cart it in because at some point you had contact with some other culture that actually eats it a lot, and through either pleasant or unpleasant contact, you learned about it. One of my favorite real world examples of this is the origins of tempura in Japanese cuisine. That's just Portuguese, guys. That's just <laughs> like a Portuguese introduction. The Portuguese arrive in Japan in what, 1600 or so-ish? And they're like, we have fried food. And the Japanese are like, this is delicious. Thank you for keeping this. <laughs> And your cool pants. <laughs> I was going to say, in my book, I have a thing where the Poetian culture wears all black all the time. They don't wear any other colors. And even though that does not come up, it doesn't come up in the book of why that happens. I have worked out the history that they had like a plague of these locust-like creatures that ate 
all the cloth except the black dyed cloth and so they were like we're not going to dye cloth anything else ever again so (laughs) that this doesn't happen ever again just everything's gonna be black we won't have this problem again love it love it (laughs) also even getting back to food because that's just food food. we're we're all food of course it's interesting because even i wanted to look a bit at you know the idea of new world versus old world crops that if for my book if they're still stuck a few centuries in the past and haven't gotten those new items yet that the cuisine itself might be sort of a picture of more proper medieval cuisine rather than what, mm-hmm. what we come to know of oh this is food from this region that you know we're so familiar with tomatoes and chilies and all these things now it changed it versus how things were you know before 14 1492 yeah, yeah. There's some really good reference websites because people people have been writing cookbooks since forever. I think the first published cookbook was called Dere Coconaria, and it's from the Roman Empire. I don't remember exactly when it was, but people have found those cookbooks and translated them and put them on the internet. So if you're trying to do research for like historical foodstuffs, dear listeners, that's a really good place to start looking. A really good website for that is foodtimeline.org. Oh, nice. (laughs) It has, like, the whole history of, like, you know, people started eating this food in, you know, 17,000 BC. And people started doing, like, it's got all of that. It is a delightful resource. So if you're like, were they making this in the 18th century and what can I use that? You can look that up and find exactly when that happened. Have we done an episode about food yet? We have never, we have never we done have a done pure food e- episode. We have done every yet. episode about food and, and we have done no episode dedicated to food. We have yet to do a, <laughs> is how every it worked episode out. Every episode is about economics. <laughs> And taxes and, and food. It's going to become the food episode. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about technology because a thing that I see in fantasy books a lot is that it's sort of frozen in time and there have been no new technological developments for as long as anyone can remember, thousands and thousands of years. And it sort of feels like there's not going to be any new technological developments for th- more thousands and thousands of years. Like, you look at Middle Earth, and you can't imagine them building a spaceship 2,000 years after Frodo and the Ring, right? No. Like, but right? I kind of want that story now that I you mean, mention it. I mean, yeah. Well, hang on for a couple more books from now. I'm writing a thing. But I think, tied to that, rarely do you see in, in fantasy novels in their world building that they show their history. Like, you'll get history with, like here are the dynasties, here are the kings Mm -hmm. and queens, here are the wars, and maybe here are the big generals. You never get, like, here are the mathematicians over time. Here's here's... when we invented, here's where we discovered gravity. Yeah. Here's where we invented this new kind of ship. Here's when we invented the compass. Yeah. Where's the, like, here's the Descartes of my world. Here's, (laughs) Here's the guy who figured out calculus just so he could do the math the thing he wanted to figure out like yeah very rarely do you see that sort of thing no i was gonna say i do think there's some shortcuts to kind of find ways to do that because you think about how do we think about technology now you can so generational differences or mm-hmm. you know this this person's talking about this have you heard about like it's it's funny because I, I i agree like i don't think you see it a lot but take a step back and you're like wow there's actually like a lot of ways to kind of mirror how we think about progress and the differences in our lives versus our grandparents' lives and kind of just throw that in fictional form. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and I think too, just remembering how much like technology can spur other changes historically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, like an in my book moment, like there it's it's kind of an eighteenth century parallel. So they're kind of on the cusp of an industrial revolution, and they have textile mills, and that's kind of the first the first cog in that wheel of starting of the push toward industry. And there's one country that has been this like kind of backwater. They don't really have much in the way of natural resources, but um, what's kind of implied in the books is they have a shit ton of coal under their rocky little Island and they're investing it in building factories. Yeah. And so you kind of have this, like this, this little backwater in like 20 years is probably going to be rocking it out because they have, an advancement that that other countries have not invested in quite as much yet. And so, like, how does that change the power plays of an entire world? Yes. When you have just a slight change in technology and suddenly... Yes. Rowena said something super, super important. You mentioned that technology can sometimes make society change. I don't remember your exact words, but that was kind of your point, right? Like, Mm -hmm. technology can spur historical events. But the opposite is also true. Historical events can also yes. spur the development of technology. For example, the Cold War, the space race, because we suddenly had to show the world that America was the best, right? And we couldn't do it by going to war. So we decided to do it by going to space instead. And it was suddenly <laughs> extremely important that America was the first to go to space. And because we had that political pressure, we have this huge boom in technology and these technological advancements that kind of cascade down through the rest of society and affect tons and tons of the things that we now take for granted. My first thought was the guillotine, and I'm so much happier you said this. (laughs) (laughs) So much more positive. It's, you know, I mean... Oh, you're talking about like how politics, they were like, we need a faster way to Well, it's like, look, we have a We need a good solution to a problem that we have. (laughs) Since we can kill people so much more efficiently now, should we? (laughs) Let's kill more of them. you were just saying about the space race you know how much does that parallel even the fact that you know historically a lot of scholars and inventors and and of every stripe and artists as well followed sort of that new king of oh i've got to make my court fancier and more impressive than Uh that guy's territory i just stole so get me a mathematician from coruscant and get me a poet from here and now (laughs) see that we're the cool new city like you know and that in itself spurs development yes 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 Love that. God, I love that. <laughs> Marshall Ryan Moresca, we started talking about change and generational change, and I remember that you wanted to talk about generations and yes, and uh, uh, that element of history. It's one of those things I've been thinking about more and more in the thing I'm currently writing, because because I'm writing something where there's been like recent world wars and how that like the process of living through something like that can mm. you know change the point of view of your characters significantly more than the people who grew up after this. I started thinking about, and plus there was the whole thing recently with okay boomer and all that. And I was thinking, I was thinking about like how many fantasy worlds have those sort of distinct, like the, the people who are this age lived through this stuff. And thus as a group will react this way to this stimulus or will think this way about 
about what that war was like or what that king was like whereas the younger generation didn't live through that and thus are going to react in a completely different way and what can you it's not too often that you see fantasy books that think along those lines that that your character's parents or grandparents were really had radically different lives and experiences that shaped the way they think about these things mm -hmm. and in digging through the research i found this thing called the the strauss howe generational theory it's also called the fourth turning theory that it's this whole really neat thing about how throughout history we get these you know 20 year cycles of generations but then we also get these larger 80 year cycles of every four generations and it's it is a wild thought to put into what you're doing with the history of your of your characters and their recent history so that mm -hmm. the thing of like say the people who lived through the french and indian war and fought in that have a very different frame of reference than like the people who lived through the american revolution and then the people who grew up right after the revolution was over each of those are going to react to things in a different way and have different feelings and opinions about about the history that they're living through just as much as as the millennials today are going to be different from the Gen Xers of today are going to be different from the boomers because we each had these very different key things that shaped our generations. Yeah, interesting. And then you create a whole new thing to think about with how history and cultural memory and living memory of like what people actually lived through can be very different things. And I definitely do not see fantasy books do enough on that because too many so many fantasy books treat like the deep long history like it's living memory yeah which is mm -hmm. really really weird um i'm going to rant about the belgariad again because this is now trying to become <laughs> sure, go ahead. like a regular <laughs> this is going to become my regular spot here in my marshall ryan mariska's ranting about the belgariad corner <laughs> the fun facts ranting we're borrowing a fun facts uh something corner from uh be the serpent uh my other podcast uh <laughs> so this is marshall ryan mariska's fun facts ranting about the belgariad corner take it away <laughs> Because one of the things that happens in that is, like, the last war that affected all these countries before they, like, hammered out a big peace treaty was 500 years ago. And, like, there hasn't been a war between these different cultures for this 500 years. Partly because this is, it's like a Cold War fantasy almost, but it's still yeah. medieval in, in its layout. So you have people being like, well, this is what we have always done because of this war 500 years ago you have other at one point they're like if we were doing this then you would know it because you know how we wage war i'm like but you don't <laughs> that, know how they wage that war because that's never happened in your lifetime yeah <laughs> thus you have things where like cultures based on this weird cultural memory that has nothing to do with living memory are making choices that would make no sense for them like we all do this so we're prepared for this attack that might come someday that's not come for 500 years but just in case our entire lifestyle is based around the premise that we're ready for this attack whenever it's gonna come and it's wild and weird and makes no sense whatsoever and yeah and slipped past me when i read it as a teenager and then when i read it again recently i'm like what is going on? I was going to say, if anything, I feel like it's the opposite. Sometimes you're reading through history and you're just like, your city was sacked and destroyed. Like, 
four years ago. I mean, <laughs> I'm not building fortifications, you know. It's, it's a surprise. Humans don't do not think long term. No, no, we don't. Yeah. But it is also true that they'll hold weird grudges, like like we are we are still mad at the Macedonians for that thing that happened five hundred years ago. Yes. Well, I feel like the whole history memory connection is a really interesting one because you know for a long time we kind of in terms of writing history like historiography study of history we kind of ignored memory and first person accounts were often given a lot less credence than anything official or on the record and you might have some first person accounts like memoirs taken immediately after that maybe you give some precedence to um but it um where i went to undergrad indiana university had a history uh, a sorry a center for the study of history and memory that started out as just like an oral history um, repository basically like they were like we're gonna get the oral history of the university and then they're like well how can we evaluate these oral histories and they realized like we have a much bigger research question here than just oral history of this space and it's been really interesting kind of like watching what they do in terms of how do you integrate official history with how people remember it? Mm -hmm. And to what degree is how people remember an event actually sometimes more accurate than what ended up in recorded history? And there are some really interesting examples from World War II of like an entire unit having the same memory of how long something took. But the official record says like, oh, it was an hour. And they're like, we were out there for like six hours. And it turns out, like, oh, they were actually right. <laughs> and the official record was not. But even if they weren't right, you have this kind of esoteric question of, well, is there a value to that it felt like six hours? Or I remember it being this way when it comes to crafting the narrative of history. Yeah, I think it's very interesting um, because a lot of times you're correct. That official narrative is oftentimes the cleaned up narrative. And it's an elite narrative created by the elites of the society where I feel like a lot of times the oral records you tend to get more of what we call, would say the common perspective and there's absolutely value in that so question in terms of when we're like writing our possibly very intense world building for our books what kinds of histories do we think about like do we just think about Obviously, we don't. Um, political history and kind of national history, but there can also be like magical history, mm -hmm. religious history. Like, what kind of histories um, end up in your work? I'm f focusing <laughs> a lot on technological developments because that's something that I have big opinions about in fantasy books, and I want to be sure that I am doing that thing. I want to show a world that is not always going to be the same thing. It's always in a state of transition um, because that's life, right? Like everything is always changing all the time. People are always inventing new things and forgetting about old things and it's a constant flow state. Um, there's also a couple big geological events uh, which are going to be important over the course of uh, the books that I keep writing in this world, I don't want to talk about all of them because that would be a major spoiler. Um, uh, but yeah, but no, like, that's a really it's good always point weird to talk about natural... like, this is the book I plan to write. <laughs> yeah. But that's a really good point that natural history can be a very 
vital and important part of history. Yes. For example, um, one which isn't a spoiler at all, um, I know that a supernova occurred about uh, 5,000 years before A Conspiracy of Truths because um, one of the societies based their calendar epic on that event. Uh, and the epic being what they call year zero. It was that that supernova because I needed kind of this. This is peeking behind the curtain. But I, as the author, needed a numbering system. And so I was like, I don't want to deal with like ADBC sort of bullshit. That's weird and and Western centric anyway. So I'll just have like a random thing that happens so I can call that year zero and just go from there. But of course, you know, everyone numbers their calendars differently. Well, and that's a, an excellent way to think about your starting point when you're building a history is what does my calendar look like in the first mm -hmm. place? Like, do I have 12 months that are about 30 days because I have a moon that goes every 30 days? Do I have yeah. something else to, to dictate what a year is on the calendar and how that's broken up. And then when do I start the year zero? And yeah. when does a year zero reset for whatever reason? And right. all of because these are fantastic choices you can make to make things seem weird or or, or interesting. Or, and it can be like, is that because this is when the empire was formed? Or this is when the empire fell? Mm -hmm. Or this is when the sky exploded? So we're like, yeah, that's a good day. <laughs> <laughs> I really like playing um, with, or maybe playing is not the correct idea, but I like looking at religious timelines. And I ended up using that for the Devabad trilogy. It was sort of like, okay, they start their clock when Suleiman frees them, and they consider their lives and the idea of generations. It's been one generation, two generations, three generations since we were cursed. Um, but even in terms of sort of different events, I really liked especially with my last book, Empire of Gold, I wanted to look at sort of the origins of religions. I, I find mm -hmm. that fascinating of, of how we build, our, our faiths all build off earlier ideas and sort of, we don't like to admit that or talk about that, but, you know, <laughs> looking back and saying, okay, why do we say this? Where does this come from? And even, you know, with, with mine, I wanted to kind of look in different ways of, you know, I'm a Muslim, but I wanted to kind of pay credence to the idea that some of these gin tales came from earlier cultures and came from earlier times mm -hmm. and how in some ways those creatures may have felt being replaced. Uh, so I think it's just this whole playing with time and the understanding and sort of the stories and straight out lies we tell ourselves and then we tell the, <laughs> we tell the ongoing generations to the point where a thousand years later, you know, nobody believes that anymore, even if you can look back and say, I think that's the truth, you know, wherever <laughs> truth may lie. Yes. Especially if you're doing something where, like, there was magical bullshit a thousand years ago, and maybe that's died down somewhat because of whatever reason, and then people are like, those were just wacky fairy tales, that's not real history, but then something comes back, and they're like, oh, maybe that was real history, though... Because again, who writes the history, and what do they... Not only what do they write, but what do they scrub out? Yes. One thing that I want to make sure that we have time to talk about, just because it's it's such a thing in Shannon's books, is when real world history and the fantasy world that we create intermingle and come together in some way. Because the three of us are writing second world fantasy that's like separate from, perhaps inspired by real world history, but we aren't... The twain do not actually meet, but in Shannon's book, they do. And so how do we handle that? And what are ways that we, we pull that into 
rich, complex, interesting world building. And I kind of wanted to let Shannon do a little bit of a deep dive on that just because she was kind enough to be here with us today. And I'm so interested in what she did in her books. You know, it's interesting because I, I, and I, I, I preface this with the fact that I, I don't believe there's a lot of rules in world building. And yeah. I came at this from such a strange perspective that I was writing about something that interested me academically. I was investigating something as a personal matter of my faith. But then I was trying to walk a line and be respectful to a history that I was actually not culturally connected to. So mm -hmm. I feel like I have a lot of rules for myself <laughs> and understanding that <laughs> I would tell other people, especially if, if they're writing about the history of their actual people, you know, I would never tell them to, to hold themselves to. But with the, the ways history interacted, I just really wanted to see what it would look like if you had this sort of society of magpies. <laughs> <laughs> and what they collected and the way that you could say, you know, you would go back, you have my main character, Nahri, who is, is the book starts and, and Cairo has just recently fallen to the French. And I wanted it to feel like you're seeing the very beginnings of Western colonialism and occupation in the region. She then travels back to a world that feels like it's set more in the 1200s and the 1300s. And they're just starting to understand the idea of what is this gunpowder, these rifles, this, these tools. They're seeing the products of an, uh, uh, the oncoming industrial age, the idea of, you know, even just the fact that there's so many more products coming from the world. And it's foreign to them. And I wanted to kind of look back and see the ideas of, of clashing of Western, Western colonialism versus the idea of what looked like, you know, there's very different understanding of, of occupation and ethnicity in the medieval Islamic world that I wanted to kind of quietly contrast to what we think of the more essentially violent colonialism of the West. But I wanted to look at that a bit and see where we could find that and see, okay, so you have one group they've picked up on some elements of Zoroastrianism, but how have they gotten it wrong? You have another group um, that is sort of mirroring the history between the Southern Arabian Peninsula and East Africa. So it was really meant to feel like an homage in a way, but not mm -hmm. exactly. It was just kind of um, taking parts at, out of more trying to, to embrace as much as I could in terms of geography and time and, and kind of have a little something for everybody, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I was even just thinking about like, you know, just like little things with history. If I, I had the idea, you know, I talk about that, you know, I, I love history and I like the idea of the jinn because they lived for so many centuries and they're said to be these invisible creatures. And that's amazing to me. I was like, oh, you basically watch the rise and fall of all of the places and people I love. What did they think about it? So it's like, you know, we say, well, I won't even get into the library of Baghdad because that in itself is a, is a fictional creation of, of history. But it was that idea of, you know, text that we that we've lost or, or devices that, you know, different ways of making weapons. Like what would happen if there were just these magical creatures who had essentially kept some of this stuff or added magical ways to it? And it was just kind of playing with a lot of aspects I liked that you could just, you know, you would read something new. Okay, they now have this book there. And it's it was just a lot of fun to create. Well, that's a really interesting kind of like intersection with what Marshall was saying about generations. That like, what if a generation looks completely different? How does that change an understanding of history? And I think that even just asking that question about how you understand the history of a second world or how you understand the history of our world, like you don't even actually have to do it in your text to reveal some really interesting biases and understanding of how do we 
talk about history. How do we narrate history? Yes. Because we're basing it on this kind of like people only live for about, you know, less than 100 years. So our understanding is going to be very different because we have these short little nuggets compared to what a magical creature might understand history to be. Which can tie into like what Alex was saying about about Middle Earth and a Tolkien-esque world where things don't seem to have changed for centuries upon centuries. But if you have characters who have been alive throughout all that time and for whom like that the battle 5,000 years ago is living memory for all the people in this one city, <laughs> then yeah, you're not going to see big sweeping changes because their idea of like what, how things are supposed to be is going to be a lot more fossilized just because they've been living through that and have a very different sense of what generational changes are. I love the idea of long live creatures. It's like, you can just do such a deep dive. You're like, what does marriage look like if you live for 500 years? <laughs> like, do you think you get tired of each other by then? You know, after the first hundred years, it's like living with a piece of furniture. I don't know. <laughs> There, there is some show that I read about. It's on Amazon Prime that the idea is that in the afterlife, you're then like just stuck with whoever you were married to. And so you have this couple who were like, were kind of like, they didn't get divorced, but they were kind of just like tired of each other. And so they were like, oh, good. Now we're dead. Like, oh, we're still stuck with each other for eternity now. Oh. Great. Yay. <laughs> Yay. So on the topic of like how we talk about history and how we study history, at, I don't know for you guys, but at least for me, whenever I was studying history in school, I would folk like the history textbook would focus on a region and we'd talk about like a couple hundred years of that region. And then we talk about another region and focus on a couple hundred years of that. And they were sort of isolated from each other. Um, so I have a really cool book rec for you guys. It's called 1688, A Global History. And it is a history of the world of things that happened in the year 1688 and only the year 1688. <laughs> and it has this fascinating sort of example of how things kind of mesh together and weave together and influence each other across the globe and it's not just 1688 because you know they have to talk about well this happened a few years previously and this is how it ended up but it's it, literally a world history the world in 1688 and it was fascinating to read because it really changed my perspective on how like snapshots of history kind of fit together if that makes sense because like you think about the wild west and that doesn't seem like the same world that Japanese samurai lived in, even though that was happening at the same time. There were samurai that lived at the same time that the Wild West was having cowboys and bullshit. So you could write a fantasy novel about that. I think there may be a fantasy novel. <laughs> well, there yep. should be more because it's cool. Weren't, weren't there samurai who ended up in central america for some no 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 there were samurai were hired in like the 17th century as yes. bodyguards in mexico city because i remember there was like really a, yes, yes. <laughs> and there was like a chinatown in mexico city yes. Yes. at the same time so because <laughs> I, I remember there was like a whole meme that came out it was like like when you say something is unrealistic remember you could realistically write a story about 
like escaped slaves and samurai and Chinese masters all in Mexico City in the 17th century. <laughs> at the same time. At the same time. So somebody yeah. damn well write, should write that book. <laughs> yeah. Someone should absolutely write that book. The world is just so much more like complicated and interesting than we ever g- give it credit for. And history is so much more complicated and interesting. I feel like yeah. it is more difficult. Like you, you can't even write some of these things in fiction. Nobody would believe you. No one would believe you. No, yeah. no. Capture the complexity and sheer, <laughs> quite frankly, ridiculousness sometimes of, of politics, of anything. Uh, yes. Because people wouldn't believe you. They'd be like, that's, that's silly. Nothing like that happened. <laughs> like, are, are you sure you can fit all of those things in at once? Doesn't that seem like too many things? <laughs> Cowboys are you making? Are her? you making some kind of a statement? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or also just like read old newspapers and see just how wild things were, you know, at, even in a small... T- okay, so... Small town drama. In the small small town town drama. Historical be... small town drama <laughs> gives me life. Oh my god. So I had done this deep dive into my genealogy because I had just recently unlocked a whole thing that I hadn't previously found of who my great great grandparents who came from Italy were. Yeah. The Barascas? Yes. Because you and I are both Barascas. Yeah. You really want to know. You really want to know. So. <laughs> I mean, they were terrible people. <laughs> but like in fascinating ways. Like they came to America in like the in like eighteen ninety four. And then once I started like digging through newspaper articles, like it kept coming up like and these newspapers were like fascinatingly racist against Italians because it's like, oh, those Italians on Ferris Street are at it again. <laughs> but it was also... Those horse thief Marescas. <laughs> no. Okay. So like my, like, and it's stuff of like, you know, he was arrested again for not taking care of their children and their children were arrested for stealing things out of some abandoned apartment. Then apparently my great, great grandmother got sick of my great, great grandfather and started having an affair with the man across the street. Incredible. Incredible. <laughs> Christmas night. My great-great-grandfather and his two brothers attack the guy in the middle of the street, stab him, and shoot him three times. And this is all, like, laid out in the paper. Because, like, because this is a fun story. Because drama. (laughs) The guy lives. My great-grandfather goes to jail for a while. And then there's, like, a whole drama because my great-grandmother moves in with this other guy across the street. And then... Like, the day my great-great-grandfather gets out of jail, the other guy, like, attacks him, like, in the police station that day. This is fabulous. This is fabulous. I love it. But it's fascinating how it's all written about... I'm not, like, you know, emotionally connected in the sense of, like, oh, my God, I came from terrible people because, you know... <laughs> but Because we all did. Because we, yeah, all, we did. all came from terrible people. It's very true. It's very true. But it's fascinating the way it's written about in these papers, like because the people who's writing papers love the drama, but also they're very open-ended on things like spelling and getting uh-huh. their facts right and things like that. So yeah. you, you often see like, oh, this this is referring to the thing the other day. And oh, you in this article, you actually misidentified which one tried to kill him. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's wonderful because it also proves that humans have been human basically forever and like we've always been this way and 
And a lot of times I think that we have this tendency to kind of like whitewash over how people behave in history and like sort of present them as like more noble or more pure or more like lofty minded in some way. And like, no, humans are petty bitches no. now. And we were petty bitches 500 years ago and we'll still be petty bitches 500 years from, from today. No, so, no, like, no. Sex was only if, invented like, like in 2003. I once <laughs> had someone, I once had someone try to tell me that pornography is a modern invention. And I was like, really? No. Have you ever seen no. Japanese oh, woodcuts from the Edo area? Summer child. No. Yeah. Like, <laughs> or the stuff they found in Pompeii that didn't get literally whitewashed over because... It's like people have always <laughs> yes. wanted to look at sexy pic- pictures. Like, everyone... They're just better at it culture has dirty books, are. you know? Yes. Yeah, we are just oh, better at that, it. That will, that will be another episode, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yes, definitely. Oh, 1,000%. We should do an episode yes. on, like, historical sex and porn and bullshit porn yes. and- <laughs> i'm here for it world building erotica <laughs> it's valid though i feel it like is a valid. lot of people well it reveals a lot about how people think about many things uh-huh. relationships aesthetics Hygiene, gender morality I mean, it's just all rela- kinds yeah, of relationships family values yeah. all sorts of shit yeah that is like a really valid <laughs> okay well i guess we can put that on the pencil that it's on the docket then <laughs> Shannon, do you want to come back for that? <laughs> I feel like I have much to say, but probably not to be recorded. I've read a lot of explicit uh, love poetry that I'm just like, oh, I, I, was not, I was not prepared for this. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So we are getting to the end of the episode, and we always uh, traditionally ask our guest stars to contribute a small piece of world building uh, to the fantasy world that we're sort of collaboratively building on this podcast. So, Shannon, would you like to sort of tell us a anything, anything? It doesn't have to be on theme. Uh, it could be it could be a historical event that happened somewhere in this world, or it could be something else. Whatever strikes your fancy. What have you got for us? Oh, everything I'm thinking is ridiculous. It can be ridiculous. That is perfect. R.J. Theodore gave us... <laughs> That's on brand. R.J. Theodore gave us magical fossilized dinosaur poop. So... <laughs> I'm just thinking now, I was... There, I've been reading a lot about um, ships carrying exotic animals okay, and okay. not knowing what to do with them. <laughs> like, I love it. I'm already thrilled. It's like you have a giraffe. What? What the fuck is a giraffe? <laughs> but like, you know the idea of like, you just get a shipload of animals in, and it's it's tribute. It's from this king across the sea who is trying to show you favor, and the way he shows you favor is he hands you an exotic menagerie of lots of different animals, many of which could kill you, and none of which you know how to take care of. <laughs> I love it. Okay, I love it. So, so is that is that the w- tie that into world building for us? Oh, I have to tie that into world. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. would you re- okay so? How would you respond to something like that? How how does it? What do you do when you have this little zoo for your for your palace to see? Does it make people want to leave and go explore more? How do you you know do you have or, what or, do you create? Or rather, or rather, <laughs> rather I, I I miss I maybe uh, gave you the wrong impression. Like a, a fact of the world building. Like like do a piece of world building for yes. us for this world. So in 
in our in our, in our world we have some countries somewhere that this is how they interact with other countries is hi i want to make friends and i'm have going a zoo. to send you a shipload of marsupials because that's what we have just have too many marsupials let's get rid of some of them <laughs> population let's ruin control your i i i i kind of <laughs> i kind of love this concept though <laughs> it makes me very happy okay. I, no okay, so just let's... that there's a culture that as tribute will just send a boat of animals over i'd love it cool <laughs> cool that works for me i love it yeah i love it can, let's say that it's probably somewhere in the tropical region do we want to make it tropical region that seems a little presumed doesn't it it does seem it does. a little presumed now that i say it out loud let's choose something different we don't do we have any really arctic reasons that would like send a penguin and a polar bear that's pretty cool <laughs> hopefully or, not like, a bunch, like, like you, there's the thing about it is that we always presume biodiversity, like like huge amounts of interesting biodiversity around the tropics, which, okay, sort of, but there's also really cool biodiversity, like, pretty much everywhere. Um, so, yeah, let's let's make it a more Arctic kind of region. I think not the sort of Russia-inspired one that we were talking about a couple episodes ago. Yes. I think somewhere else. Um, yeah, and they, like, maybe they have a culture that is really just into animals and centered around animals for some reason. And they're like, oh, making friends? Here. A polar bear, <laughs> a, a walrus, critter. a seal, some penguins. Everyone loves a penguin. A caribou. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what's really wild about this? Shannon, you're totally right that historically... It's like, fantasy was Canada. <laughs> we just made up <laughs> fantasy Canada, you guys. <laughs> Oh, so what were you saying to Shannon? <laughs> oh, just that, and when, when these animals show up somewhere, like, you get all kinds of mementos, and I think there are, like, a ton of, like, souvenir handkerchiefs from the first giraffe to show up in France. I, I wonder when that first happened. I'm thinking, like, you know what it is? I have a, pic I have a picture, and it's why, I'm, why it got in my mind. I have a picture of, it, it's you know, the first giraffe that showed up in China. And it's like, yeah. I, I have thought to myself, every time I look at this, I'm like, what went into putting that animal on a stone <laughs> yeah. yeah, in the 1300s? Like, <laughs> just, just so, like, I like, really wanted to get that over. <laughs> I really wanted to get that giraffe on the yes. show. Like, that yes. investment of time and emotion <laughs> and labor. And, and really about just... two weeks into that boat trip, they were like, this was a bad plan. So <laughs> many regrets. We made a terrible. I think I think mistake. they're like halfway into God. getting the giraffe on the boat. Like they've got the first two legs of the giraffe onto the boat, and they're like, "This is a bad plan." But we can either like turn around and go back, or we just keep going forward. We're halfway there already, guys. This was such a fun episode, Shannon. Thank you so much for being here, thank Shannon. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. This was a yeah, lot of yes. fun. This yeah, was yeah. fun. you thanks for listening to this episode of world building for masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life our next episode goes up on february 19th we talked a lot in this episode about history but now let's talk about how folks memorialize it we're building some monuments and wonders of the world we really hope you like this episode 
If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is worldbuildcast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. Speaking of sending animals as diplomatic gifts, in 1827, Muhammad Ali of Egypt sent a giraffe named Zafara to King Charles X of France. Somehow, she managed to survive 18 years. This is honestly astonishing to me. Mm -hmm.